Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Years on Dublab. And today I'm joined by legendary production designer, art director, world builder, painter, master visualist, and supremely good egg, Rick Carter. As a two-time Academy-winning production designer who's up for another Oscar for his work on Spielberg's The Fablemans, Rick has spent most of his life working with the cinematic heavyweights, Steven Spielberg, James Cameron, Robert Zemeckis, and J.J. Abrams, to name a few, creating and shaping worlds that have become embedded in our own. However, while few have enjoyed such an illustrious career in Hollywood, Rick lives in another dimension entirely, very much on his own terms. From the mid-80s onwards, Rick bounced back and forth between Zemeckis and Spielberg, working on films such as Back to the Future, Jurassic Park, Death Becomes Her, Forrest Gump, AI, War of the Worlds, and many, many more for 20-something years. And starting with Jurassic Park, Rick has served as production designer on 11 Spielberg features, including the director's latest, The Fablemans. But with all of these awards and accolades and success, Rick seems to get ever more zen and in the gap of it all, seeing his work as creative journeys in consciousness. Rick, thank you so much for being with me and and for me being here with you in your home studio. Well, thank you. I, I love talking with you all the time. Oh, good, because uh, the feeling is mutual. So I like how you appropriately have... Hey, we're both having tea right now. We're having Roybush tea, and you have your Mind the Gap mug. <laughs> yeah, as I drink this, it helps me to mind the gap. It just feels like it's a way to soothe uh, the voice while you're going somewhere in your mind. And it also takes me back to London. And for me, too. I mean, th- I think that's probably the first conscious gap that I ever was aware of was with the Beatles and when I was 17 and got to go to Europe for the first time and London was the first stop. So for me, being a 17-year-old, the summer of love in London, being a big Beatle fan right when All You Need Is Love was coming out, that kind of transcendent gap that was opening up between my normal world and where that trip took me and then the trip that the Beatles took me on was one that I've always referred back to because it's that's just the one that opened up the floodgates and I saw so much how wide it could be and yet how narrow and close it all could be at the same time. That that idea of something simultaneously far away and also right there and close, mm. that opened up right at that time in 1967. And not to give anything away, but the Beatles have definitely made something of an impact on your life. <laughs> I think about it all the time. It, it's it's amazing because especially when you see younger people be obsessed with someone, uh, especially musicians, mm. but it can be an, an, an artist or anything. And sometimes a part of you when you're older wants to say, well, you know, get your own identity and get your own life. And then I think to myself, who are you talking to? That's exactly how I found myself was through somebody else doing something that I could relate to. And in this case, it was John Lennon and then the Beatles, by extension, all that collaborative experience that they had together, they put out as music, that became the baseline for me as to how 
how to live my life. And so I'm still identifying with whatever that was that John Lennon and the Beatles were putting out. And all these years later, it is not lessened. I would have thought by now with all this experience on the planet Earth, I would have formed an identity that would have allowed them to have their place and not be who I am. Yeah. But like even when you were saying that I was a good egg, that I was thinking, well, yeah, that's right. I'm an Eggman because that's what I learned in 1967 from the Beatles. You know, I am the walrus. I would almost say that it's not even that you took on an identity of the Beatles or that that was shaping your identity, but that their sense of identitylessness was what really impacted on you and is something that it feels like you've retained and remained very true to in a world like Hollywood, which is very identity, ego led in a way. Glad you said it that way, because I do actually view it as when those individuals who are so powerful and could be so egotistical and get away with it, when they could start to break down their own egos and show you aspects of their personalities that were different than what you would have accepted or expected, actually. And then they did make it acceptable. So that kind of duality of breaking down the ego and yet forming a whole other identity that reached out and involved other people, mm. that is a big part of what I've, I've striven to do. And, and also in the creative process with um, the Spielberg and the Zemeckis and the Cameron and J.J. Abrams connections, what I've tried to do is get past the ego parts of identifying whose idea anything is at any given moment. And sometimes it's, it's almost like, what can you do to confuse the issue a little bit so that when you refine yourself in the creative process with an idea, you're not even sure whose idea it is because it actually is not coming from just one person. Mm. And that's the part that often creates, I think, ideas that are much better. Because I've always had trouble identifying what's my aesthetic in the production design. You know, what kind of a designer am I? And I realize it's more about finding something that's an eclectic natured coming together of visions and that that's what you see on the screen. Mm. And, it, and I think it has a heartbeat to it and almost a mind beat to it that somehow allows those movies sometimes to resonate, maybe not more than they would have if I wasn't there, but at least I know the parts of what is me that is there and it's not selective, like this is my idea, or that's my idea. Production design, I've always looked at not only as setting the stage for a scene, which is the way it's defined by most people. Like, what does a production designer do? It's very hard to know because you don't want to. You don't want to know somebody has set up the scene that you're actually watching. You just want to be in the scene. But the the definition would be that you are in charge of that world that's built, or the set, or the visual idea of what's going on in any t given time. And that is the job. But I like the idea that production designing is setting the stage for, and then I just put dot, dot, dot in my mind. And it's like, that could be for a good idea, a good conversation, a good sense of coming together around something and then actually doing it. The doing of it is something I, I cherish, but I love the fact that, that you can set the stage for that. And that involves sometimes literally asking profound questions that maybe other people don't ask. Like, what is the spirit of this place that mm -hmm. I'm trying to invoke by creating it? 
And it's not just me, it's a collaborative thing, so I have to get other people on the same wavelength. And then get the director to also say, I love that, I can work with that. And that will be creative for me when they have all the actors there and they're doing the scene. So it sounds very, I don't know, ethereal almost, but at this stage, I think that that etherealness is working even when you have it cornered sometimes. I talked to a lot of younger production designers and actually made a real point of this recently to, to engage them with where are they in their process and what they think their issue is. And I always try to just help them see that that's not the sum of the issue that yeah. they've got. There's another dimension to it. And sometimes when I can just help them be inspired to see just outside of the emotional clinginess to the problem, mm. then they can suddenly go, oh, once you get that, oh, and there's a release... Then another idea can come in, and then, or you just come back to the person that you want to work with, and you have a different attitude. And now we know that we're engaged in one of those ones that's at the edge of knowability, at least for us. That's sometimes helpful. So you don't have to actually then go, oh, somebody else could figure this out in a second, and we'd be on time and budget and everything. Instead, you, you kind of let that go for a moment, and maybe something comes into the process where you just didn't expect it, but you go, like I've had. Spielberg say, or Zemeckis say, you know, we get to that point, you go, well, maybe it's not actually worth being in the movie then. If we can't figure it out. Yeah. You know, if we are all here and we're all, you know, we're getting all tense over what we don't know, maybe we're doing this wrong. And sometimes a better idea is just, why don't we then just do this? And then you go, well, yeah, why did that not work before? I don't know. I've heard <laughs> musicians say that all the time, that they lay down something they, when they first hear it back, they're not sure that it works at all. They put it away. They come back to it. And somebody they go, well, what's wrong with this? And then maybe whoever they're with says, well, actually nothing. I think it's great. Oh, well, what were we thinking? I don't know. So it's that in and out of breathing with the creative experience that even though it's collaborative and even though it's ego-driven, keeping your mind open to what's actually happening in the moment is, for me, where most of the best ideas come from. And in time and space, when you're trying to do this within a short period of time, and you're getting very tense about how much time you have, maybe another idea will help you get away from the time continuum so that you can actually then express what you want to. I know that sounds abstract. But, no, no, but, it doesn't. But it's, I'm just trying to break <laughs> it open that even something as literal as making sets for movies yeah. can involve that kind of thinking. I get it. And I mean, just to pull out one thing you said, I think being cornered is often where you get your most creative. I mean, it, it's sort of obvious, it goes without saying, but it's like those obstacles, the limits, the parameters, that's really when you test the vision in a way and kind of throw it about like clay and find out what the best version of it is. But to backtrack and say where we first met, which was appropriately at your show called Time um, at Esmoa with Jerry and Janet Zucker. What was it like seeing your work and your process presented in such a multidimensional, expansive way back to you? Well, I think that was the key, that it actually came back to me. You know, normally one thinks of putting on a show Again, you're an identity putting on the show. So then you think about, well, what do you want to put in the show? What best represents this aspect or that aspect? Then how are we going to get that accomplished? Who's going to 
do that aspect of it or this. In this particular case, it was actually the organization of the El Segundo Museum of Art with their head curator, Bernard Zunkler, who said that he wanted to make an exhibit that looked like the inside of my brain. Now, that was amazing to have somebody say something like that to me. Even better, he said, we'll find all these things that are from your life that you have in your collection, but we'll also bring it right into the present tense by not only including your own paintings that have nothing to do with the production design, but have everything to do with it because they're the complementary part of my artistic expression, Mm. which is mostly portraits. But even to take it a step further, let's bring in other artists who can interpret this body of work that you've been involved with. So now I'm, I'm talking like him talking to me, which is one of the things that I do, which is I go into the other person's head like with the director, in this case, the curator, to tell you the story of what he's telling to me as though I'm him. So there's a little bit of a mix-up here. When I say I, I'm kind of being him talking to me. And I'll try to clarify that and make it stay uh, (laughs) not too hard. But what was great, because it, it gets more complicated, that's why I'm sort of identifying this, is that he hired eight street muralists who are young people who are not cinephiles. They don't know about movies specifically. They're just really good artists. They came in, so I got to now do my process with this group of people that I'm used to doing in an art department, but that the subject now was my own work. So I wanted to show all these artists where I thought the portals might be for them to enter into certain aspects, but not the specific portal of here's this door to this movie it was much more what are the levels so they could make them their own which Mm -hmm. is how i do the work in the art department that i do on movies so for instance one artist who when i asked him about forrest gump because that was the movie he most identified with he said well the reason was because he had a a girlfriend who was much like jenny in his life who was a tragic figure so i said why don't you then use that emotion and enter into the first images you do of Forrest Gump. So he did a picture of Forrest in his uniform standing next to Jenny, who was all white, who looked like a ghost. So there he was actually showing his emotion of that movie's iconography in relationship to that woman that was in his real life. Mm. So now that was a real piece of art because it was actually coming from him using that iconography. So we did that numerous times with all of these large portraits and all of these large scenes that these artists did. So now it really started to come back to me because I got to be immersed in this world that was actually their world reflected through their filters, reflected through then the curator, who's the one who actually collaged all of it into this huge space that was 30 feet by 50 feet Amazing by 30 space. feet. And Incredible. so these were their ideas. Mm. And I, was, I could be at the center of it. And that's why we put the Forrest Gump bench there, to just sort of sit there and kind of associate with all that was on the walls. But really, it was designed to be a space that you could actually feel the power of collective imagery and how you put it together is what actually it means. Now, when I'm there and I tell certain people certain things, that can help also go to certain Mm. levels. It's also like putting something out into the collective consciousness and then it having this, you know, life of its own and it having all these many 
echoes and permutations that you'd probably never imagine and you could never predict or control. And so I think that was what was so wonderful is it really was like being in your mind, but also in this collective mind with all these worlds and sort of settings and places and times that you'd created, but then you're seeing them through these other people's eyes and they're very directly personal relationships to them. And in many ways, it felt like some of the processes you were describing of the artists making those works were also very cathartic and very healing for them as well. You know, it allowed them to work through maybe some of their own, not issues, but just different aspects of their life through the work that you'd created. I think that happened. And I can identify a few of those when it did where For instance, one aspect of all the directors I've worked with is that they have a duality in them that's quite strong. Jim Cameron is the most clear and obvious one, as is Steven Spielberg, but I'll give you an example. If you think about the movie Avatar, and you think that one person is writing all of that that relates to the Navi and Ewa and the planet of Pandora, and all of that connected consciousness that's expressed in the way that that planet works, the plant life, the consciousness, and then the alternate uh, consciousness of Quaritch and the, the people that are there strip mining the place and militaristically going aggressively after the destruction of the planet. How does one person actually have both those in them and that they're equal? And that the war that you see that's vibrating in that one person is what makes the drama so powerful. And that's why he is the artist that he is, because he's resolving, at least for those moments when he's creating, that conflict that he is attracted to both. Steven Spielberg has a movie in The Fablements, which literally brings that subtext to the surface where it's about the draw between the art and the family and his love of the family and the conflict between the two and how they're connected, how the art is actually working out so many of the things that are from the the emotional life, in this case as a child, and yet you've been watching these movies, if you've watched a Steven Spielberg movie, for the last 40 years, in which that code is right there embedded in the movies. And sometimes, again, it's particularly strong if you think about the movies he's written. Um, Close Encounters, it's a father who's drawn literally away from his family to this other dimension of the aliens that are attracting him. And he actually ends up leaving. In AI, the movie that was based on Stanley Kubrick's idea, it's a robot child who wants to become real. So the duality is just shimmering the whole time. Mm. Forrest Gump, created by Robert Zemeckis, is a young person, actually grows up right in front of us, who is supposed to be stupid. They show you that he's stupid, but he never does anything stupid. He follows his heart. So you've got this duality as to what is actually the the truth here. Mm. And then what Forrest Gump says when he's at the grave of Jenny, and he's wondering his life random or is it predestined and he comes up with the idea that it's really a little of both yeah and i believe that and that's the zone that duality between these great forces inside of artists that i also tapped into with the artists who did the murals that are in the asmoa show because they found that same thing and so when they would start to go into that zone i was affirming to them now you're starting to hit it you're actually starting to hit the thing that the movie was expressing and they were doing it on their own. That was wonderful to feel that coming back. 
So the name of this show is Orange Juice for the Ears, and it's taken from a line by Oliver Sacks about the power of music and how deep that goes. And the line is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It's a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I would like to know, Rick, what does that quote mean to you? I think it's through my ears and music, and particularly starting as a teenager and with the Beatles, once again referencing them, that I heard a wavelength through sound, audio, that made my brain expand into places that it had never gone before. And it wasn't just the lyrics, it was the combination of music with words and then back and forth that actually made my brain feel that much more alive in places and ways that I I could associate it to orange juice because that's how much I also like orange juice. You know, that taste of fresh orange juice can do something that actually makes you say to yourself, or has certainly said to me, life is good. If life can produce fresh orange juice, it must be good. <laughs> and so that's the way I feel about some of those songs where I would hear things and then it would take me to a place that I felt something. And it wasn't a drug, but it was doing something in my brain. It's like orange juice because it affirms that there's a goodness to mm. this experience and a rightness. And that doesn't mean you're not crying. You know, you can be touched so deeply and be taken to a place that makes you just go right back to feeling something that there's no other way that you would feel it by just hearing that music that either you knew from before or even if you didn't know, it's just coming to you fresh that your brain says, go here and just experience this. Perfect. Well, with that very vivid musical metaphor portrait in mind, what was the first song that imprinted on you? The first song really is from The Wizard of Oz. It is Dorothy. When she goes out in that black and white world and everything is going wrong and, and she's just imagining, you know, that somewhere over the rainbow, somewhere, there has to be another place to be able to go. And I think that that musical elevation of being able to, to feel her need for it and to identify with that and then attach myself to it and feel that there could be another place. I've always had such a strong affinity with Dorothy and her desire to get out of whatever it is that's tyrannizing her and then going somewhere else where she just doesn't have to be dealing with that in the way that she's dealing with it there. What, of course, you learn is that you always end up having to deal with that. Whatever that is, one way or another, will follow you. Embedded in the journey, if it becomes a true trip that takes you somewhere, mm. has in it, no matter where you go, there you are. So you can traverse a long ways, but a real journey that takes you somewhere will allow for you to join on the journey mm. and not be somebody else entirely the whole time. And then you can reflect back on who you were, who you are, and then who you can be. And that's that's the epiphany of, of any great trip, is that you get somewhere to realize how much power you do have, at least in the moment, to do something with it that will helpfully elevate you. And so Oz had all of that, and it had a perfect roadmap laid out with the guides that come along and they help Dorothy in a sense the identity to find itself she's always looking somewhere else and then she realizes that there is no other place no other 
form of her, even when it comes to almost like body parts, which is what's so funny in The Wizard of Oz because it's so basic. You know, the scarecrow doesn't have a brain, so he can't make up his mind because he has no mind. And yet he's the one who imparts such great wisdom because he says some people go this way, some people go that way, and some people go both ways. That like little, Forrest Gump. Exactly. Yeah. Because you, you can embrace more than one thing at the same time. Mm. And Yogi Berra has said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. And you can do that. That's the amazing thing. There's many situations where you have to have a, a choice, seemingly, when you then realize that the question that's being asked is all that is forcing a decision between the two. And if you are a computer, you don't have a choice. You're a zero or a one. But we live in an ambivalent state so much of the time. And people look at that as being a weak state because you're not sure if is it this or is it that. And again, that's one of the things that John Lennon was able to impart to me, which it wasn't a weak state, mm. that he could literally say, sometimes I feel one way, sometimes I feel another way. And I think embracing that often, not every single moment, but it's often not just a way out, it's a way to be so that you can see something that's beyond always a didactic this or that. That's the entity, the scarecrow, that doesn't even have a brain. Then you move to the one that doesn't have a heart, and then the one that doesn't have courage, and then you get to the all-powerful Oz who's supposed to sort the whole thing out, and he's a charlatan. He has no power whatsoever. He just wants you to do a deed which is to destroy his enemy. And then you get to his enemy, and then... She turns out to really not have much power since you just put water on her and she shrivels up saying, what a world. And you go back and there's actually nothing that that trip is accomplishing that was set out to be accomplishing until she realizes she has the power to return if that's what she wants to do. And then to value all those steps that in a sense were dead ends. Mm. She had a series of dead ends, really. I mean, ultimately, was the witch's dead end. <laughs> well, and because the only way out is in. You know? I think that's right. So now we're going to take a listen to Somewhere Over the Rainbow, sung by Dorothy or Judy Garland from The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I heard of once in a lullaby. And that was Somewhere Over the Rainbow by Judy Garland. And that was the track that Rick Carter chose as the first song that imprinted on him. And how old were you when you first heard it? And was it attached to the movie? Did you hear it and see the film simultaneously or...? That's a good question. I'm thinking that I must have seen the movie, but only saw the movie on television. Because it used to be shown at Christmas time on television. And we only had a black and white television. So the first few years that I saw it, which I think were probably 54, 55, 1954, 55, I would have seen it in black and white. Because I know that it was only when I went later to a movie theater that I even knew that the movie turned into color. But we had that soundtrack record, so there was a way to visualize the movie by listening to the soundtrack. That's probably where I really internalized the song the most. Got it. 
But that's kind of amazing that your first experience of Oz was black and white. <laughs> I know. I know. I didn't even do the full magic of becoming color compared to black and white. But I think then what it's one of those things where let's say you internalize something and it already has a great meaning to you. And then a little bit later, you find some other dimension that opens up as to why it has even more power. Yeah. And it was always there. You just didn't know it. And that happens every once in a while where you're attracted to something intuitively. You don't even know why its full impact could be there for you until later. And so imagine that when you give over to something when you're young or at any time, really, but particularly when you're young and you think it's wonderful, it's as good as it could be. And then the God that made that actually had in it other dimensions that you just didn't know about. Imagine that on top of everything you would love about that story, there's color. And that the color is designed for that other world. So that then just the notion of color has this whole other meaning from that point on for mm. me. And then when I got into movies, you know, the whole idea of being in one place then going to another place, that's literally the motif of almost all the movies I've worked on. They've all been journeys. They're almost always about being somewhere that's a home base and then transporting to somewhere else. And that's something I just identify with so strongly mm -hmm. in that very early age all the way till now. It's all about I'm here, then I'm there. What did I learn when I went there that allows me to come back here? So you were born in... Los Angeles, grew up in the Palisades, is that right? Basically, well, in the West Los Angeles. Okay. I was in the Valley at first, then to West Los Angeles, what's called Brentwood, and mm. then eventually the Pacific Palisades. So you haven't ventured too far. <laughs> well, that's the funny thing, right? Because like when I go to the class reunions, you know, now that we're getting on an age, I'm always the person who has moved the least <laughs> from where we went to Talk high school. Talk about journeys, Rick. I... <laughs> The only thing is that, that I, I do have this kind of, now at this point, there's not too many people who, since I have also done a lot of traveling on top of this physically, um, not too many people say, oh man, you just got stuck and haven't gone anywhere, <laughs> which I'm glad. So just tell us what was home life like? Just paint a mental portrait of that for us. Well, I was very fortunate to have two parents who loved each other. They respected each other, and they certainly allowed me to be very free. And my sister and I got along very well. I don't think my sister felt as free as I did in the, the dynamic of the family. And maybe being the firstborn, that gave me something that I rooted to that made it a little bit easier for me. I also grew up in a great neighborhood just two blocks away from my cousins, who were about my age, an older sister twins who were almost my age then a little bit younger and they were my cousins so we had a gang already that we could just go out into the neighborhood and play and we were part of that era that i've heard it referred to you know you just you'd go out and then you're you'd come home for dinner mm -hmm. and not have to be watched all the time we had a great neighborhood a lot of imagination and i think the hollywood fairy dust it was sprinkled on that neighborhood, which is that idea that you want your dreams to come true and be there as a part of this big dream factory that's, that the town is. 
And so, and your dad was involved. With and them. he was he was involved as a public relations man. He worked with Jack Lemmon, who was an actor who did some like it hot in the apartment. And through the 1960s, they formed a production company. So he actually ended up producing a movie that Jack Lemmon directed. So I was around all of that kind of world growing up. And then I really didn't think I wanted anything to do with it. Mm. Not because I didn't like it, but it just seemed not connected somehow to what my vision of things was. Um, and I didn't know what my vision was. I just knew that it wasn't Hollywoody. But then when everything started to change in the 70s, culturally, there was a subculture and a counterculture. I eventually drifted back to um, Hollywood because my father and I had a conversation in which he explained to me, well, actually, I had to ask him, what, what does an art director do? Because it had the word art in it. But what he explained was how it was a bigger field than just placing pictures on the wall and that if I wanted to come back to Los Angeles, I was in New York at the time painting. And if I wanted to come back to LA, then he would introduce me to someone who might be able to illuminate what that profession was. Mm. So when I did that, that was great because I got to be introduced to Richard Silbert, who was really a conceptual artist in the way he approached it. That turned me on to thinking there was something more than just being a functionary of the look. Nothing wrong with that, but it could be so much more. And so I was never like Dick Silbert in the sense that I wasn't trained. And he would say things like, if it was music, he would say, I can write the songs, I can play the instruments, I can conduct the orchestra, and if I have to, I can sell this out on Tin Pan Alley. And I'd think, wow, you know, and I've got hair down past my shoulders and kind of really not trained in much of anything other than art and travel and philosophy. And I thought, well, I'll, be, I'll have to be an air guitarist. I'll have to be like Joe Cocker. And that sounds like glib because he was kind of like cornering me in a sense, like, well, what are you going to learn how to do? You need to know all this. And I was kind of a little bit had that rebellious, well, then I'm going to learn none of it, but I'm going to learn it how to fake it in such a way that everybody will get the vibe of what I'm going for. Now, I didn't really know that consciously, but I would say that's what I've done. That's the way I've approached the job. Not because, to be honest, because I'm just not good at those things. I don't know how to play all the instruments, but I do know how to, the conducting part I know how to do. And so let, let's just talk now, because you mentioned your divergent way into art directing, and we're going to get more into that in a second, but talking about you and your art, where did that begin for you as a kid? You know, when did you first come to painting and drawing? And, you know, tell us a little bit about that discovery process for you. And also something I saw in the Esmoa show, I loved the fact that you actually painted scenes which would come to be. So, yeah, bring that in, if you will. From a very early age, I was always drawing and my father encouraged me. My father was a pretty good artist. He'd been an art director, actually, in print. And he was very good at encouraging me to draw. And I always drew faces and people. And that has always been the through line of my life, is to draw faces. And I think it relates to having a nearsighted right eye that looks at things a certain way up close. And then a far side eye, which is my left eye, they see two different things. So I've always associated the left eye with looking out and the production design that's building worlds. And the interior, more uh, introspective portraits are my right eye. And that split is something I've looked at 
I mean, literally, my entire life, back and forth, back and forth. But the drawing reflects, I think, the, the right eye, the near-sighted kind of personal looking into my soul over the years. That's what I look at it, because I have thousands of people. And they're not just the people now that I see outwards, the people as they've resonated now from all my world travels as little grains of sand that sort of become this point of reference that I love to explore. And I always start with the eyes. Mm. So I always drew people. I think that the first image that I drew where it really crossed the line to become personal was this portrait of Van Gogh that I did because I'd seen a, an exhibit and there was something in the eyes. And I think I caught it actually, the trouble in his eyes and yet a clarity at the same time and also a divergence in the two eyes. So something about that portrait that I created at that time based on his self-portraits was, again, that kind of message that's coming through from someone else. Here's somebody, you know, more than 100 years before me who was drawing and painting, never got any recognition in his lifetime, but he's projecting something out and I'm receiving it as a message. Transmission. It's a transmission of a state of mind. It's a psychedelic experience. It's an activity of the mind that happens through the art that I picked up on in my way and then always have kept that very, very close and dear to me mm. as far as what I care about the most. I never have exhibited these paintings and drawings. Maybe they will find a way at this latter stage of my life, but really they've been the anchor. And so I've always done that. That's how I've been able to go in with all these big imaginative directors and not really feel intimidated. It's more just trying to get to the core of what they're looking for. And then when they don't have an idea, have an idea. When they have an idea, really listen and try to build something from that as though it's a painting to itself that we're creating from a blank canvas. And the blank canvas as a white canvas doesn't have to be nothing. It actually could be everything. It could be all the colors because that's what white is. And then you just start to see which one you want to pick first to start with, mm -hmm. to draw with. So that kind of flip in the paradigm is what you do or at least I do when I'm drawing, because I don't know what I'm going to do. I just start. Now, a few of the images that I created when I was a kid, one of Abraham Lincoln and one of a pirate ship when I was four, came true. They actually turned into big Hollywood productions 30 <laughs> years later. I mean, the Goonies is a big ship that we got to build for kind of real life. I mean, real in, as in R-E-E-L, but still bigger than just a drawing of when I was four. And then also Abraham Lincoln was someone I admired, and I got to work on a movie that not only was about Lincoln and had Lincoln at the center, it had Daniel Day-Lewis, who really committed himself to becoming Lincoln for the time that he was portraying him. So that whole thing that I was talking about earlier, about the breakdown of the ego and the I and the, the I am the walrus, mm. I am he, is you are he, is you are me, and we are all together, he was playing that out. And then I felt like I was on home turf working <laughs> with that because he was the subject, but I was filling in all the environment around him. Looking around that exhibition, that show, that was what really struck me. I mean, of all the pieces, it was those two drawings you mentioned that I thought, wow, you're clearly, and you were from a very young age, tapping into a much bigger creative force that is moving through you. That is, I think, the best way of being a creative, artistic human being. So to be able to have that visionary foresight in a way, it's amazing and it's so magical. It's like 
I think often we can't see at the time, you know, we see such a tiny piece of the picture or the puzzle. And then with time, you zoom out and you get to see how these things connect. And it's really quite sublime. And also what's nice, again, is when it comes back to you, because I didn't pick those to be in the show. It was literally Bernard who came and looked at everything, and he just gravitated to pick some of these younger drawings that I had done. And at the time, even, we never commented, actually, at the time, like, oh, this will be great because we have the Goonies ship, or this will be great because you worked on Lincoln. Now, maybe they were thinking that, but I just thought, oh, they want to pick those to go in the show. And there were a number of things that they picked that were very intimate, non-showy pieces, like calendar pages or a drawing that I had done where my daughter joined in on the drawing and things that I just would not have thought, or a napkin sketch, things that I would not have said, well, I haven't done many shows, so maybe we should start with whatever's the most accomplished. They were much more interested in things that, along the lines, I think, of what you're saying, which is what were the things that were being done when the mind was not trying to apply it to something, but just going where it wanted to go? And what did I express at that time? And that's so told by so many people who are really creative mm. is to do the things that are close to you that you really want to do. Did you yourself know, oh, wow, you know, those two drawings I did as a kid came true. Had you made that connection? I'd made it with the Lincoln portrait, but I didn't, I'd never made it with the, the ship. It was amongst a, a group. There was Robin Hood and Dorothy and King Arthur and Davy Crockett, all my heroes. In a way, that heroic spirit has shown up throughout my work. I mean, Ray, the woman in Star Wars, she's like, you know, Robin Hood to me, as far as what she does and who she is, it's different stories slightly, but she's fighting on the right side for the right reasons. And she has a journey to discover not only herself, but how to win the day. And that's the part that I don't think until the show that I began to put together how clearly all the movies are heroic. That this epoch of movies, for whatever the reason, they're heroic journeys where the person at the center of them again, drawing from some of the transcendentalism of the 1960s, is seeking to find out something, and they reach an epiphany that actually determines another level of consciousness that opens up for them. And then they feel a catharsis. Mm. And hopefully, the audience at the same time feels that. What was the first record that really shaped who you are and had a major impact? The song, There's a Place, is the one that comes to my mind. And I'm so aware now that I'm so consistent with the things that at the time came to me for different reasons, but now form this sort of consciousness that is looking for something else to go to in order to have a, a view back on where I am to begin with. And There's a Place by the Beatles from Please Please Me is really the, the song that identified not only what I was feeling, but gave it an identity. There's a place where I can go when I feel low, when I feel blue, and there's no time when I'm alone, and it's in your mind. That kind of philosophy, see, that's the part that I've begun to understand is I was attracted to philosophy very, very early, not knowing that that's what it was. Okay, so now we're going to take a listen to There's a Place by the Beatles from the record Please Please Me. There is a place where I can go 
And that was There's a Place by the Beatles from the album Please Please Me. And that's the album that Rick would choose as the first record that really shaped who he is. And so on the education track, you originally went to Berkeley and then you dropped out and traveled to Asia. And then you went to UCSC and studied painting. And then you dropped out again, <laughs> went back to Asia. <laughs> you mentioned that Bali became a source for a lot of your art and your work and your work in film. Tell us why. Tell us more about that. Well, it's interesting when you say it the way you just said it, which is absolutely true. And already what I can see is the duality that's emerging because Berkeley was so intense politically that I eventually kind of really just OD'd on it. And I got a chance because of high draft number to not be subjected to the draft at that point. So I dropped out of college, traveled for a year around the world, but I didn't make it all the way around after Almost a year, I stopped in Singapore and just came home. And partly because John Lennon had an album, a single album, as a solo artist coming out in December. So I came right back so I could hear that album right away. Then I went and transferred to Santa Cruz, where I, I studied painting more. But I actually came upon, even though I love this professor, and I still regard him as the best professor I had, he had a visual fundamentals class. And it was so technical. By the time I got to the 11th assignment... I just said, I, I can't be true to myself and actually do this assignment. And he said, well, if you don't do all assignments, I can't give you a pass. It was only pass, not pass. He said, but the rules are, at least my rules, that you have to at least do, make an attempt at every assignment. I'm not going to fail you. Obviously, you've been doing great work up to this point. And I said, but I, I just can't do it. And so he said, well, why don't we just say you weren't here? And I said, okay, let's just pretend like I wasn't here. And now I'm going to drop out again. And I went back to Singapore, where I'd left off that trip, so now I'm flipping eyes in a way, you know, it's like, if everything's up close and personal, I'm escaping mm. and I'm going around the world, and I go back to where I was, and I remember when I got off the plane in Singapore and that heat and the smells and everything, I thought, it's like I never left, it's like I'm just on the same trip and now home is the part that's distant and far away I went down to Bali and I spent a month there and I just exploded. I was so turned on by the architecture, the rice fields, the women, the religion, the little details that they would put into their little offerings in the Hindu religion. And whatever Gauguin felt, I felt like I was getting an absolute dose of that in a way that, that I just exploded. So when I came back, I had a stack about oh gosh, six inches. I still have most of the drawings and paintings that I did, and I then got credit for it. That group of images became my visual fundamentals. And that really was now, for the rest of my life, the standard by which I've, I've viewed almost all of my artwork. And very little since that has ever, no matter how big the movie is, no matter how successful it is, the aliveness that I felt, you know, it's that thing when you see something outside and it's as powerful or more powerful than what's inside and you just want more of it in you. And it's a wonderful place to be in because that's often, you know, you have some idea in your mind that you think is better than the reality around you mm. and you want to project it out and express it. I just wanted as much in and then if I could even capture any part of it. I would then feel like I was at one with it. It was an osmosis between the outer and the inner. So that was my visual fundamentals. And then that eventually led me to, after graduating, going to New York to see if I could become a painter. But that was a very solitary 
pursuit that I really didn't take to entirely as being a solitary artist my whole life. The collaborative side is the other, again, the flip side. I needed that, so that's what Hollywood provided. And filmmaking was a way to get involved with that. Well, tell us now, like, how did you end up working on Hal Ashby's Bound for Glory? And Hal is one of my favorite directors. Tell us about that and, like, what you were doing there. Was that the beginning of the film journey for you? Absolutely. And it's so great to have a first movie that's called Bound for Glory. I mean, I you know never would have thought about it at the time. And it's a wonderful movie about Woody Guthrie, the, the folk singer. Hal Ashby was such a perfect entree for me into making films because he was from the counterculture and he was he was like his movies are. And he had this incredible ability to see the thing that was not obvious to everybody else and just take that as the point of view. And he would crack himself up and he'd crack everybody else up around him and just encourage people. So that's why some of the performances that are in his movies, his ability to get them. I mean, if you just think of Shirley MacLaine and being there, when she's pleasing herself with Peter Sellers, you know, <laughs> who likes to watch, it's sublime the places that he goes to and that everybody is being loved in those movies. Mm. He really had a loving heart and an absurdist uh, sensibility. And for me, I've never had experiences like that since. I mean, but my intro, literally, because it's relatively big time filmmaking, was, well, first of all, my mentor uh, that my father had introduced me to, introduced me to Hal and his production designer. So I got to have an interview with the production designer named Michael Haller. And I was wearing red tennis shoes, and I walked into his office, and he's wearing red tennis shoes. So he just looks at me and goes, so... It's a shoe-in. It's a shoe-in. <laughs> <laughs> it was a shoe-in. And he says, how much do you want? And I said, well, $250 a week. And he said, well, if you'll make it $400, i will get you into the union. <laughs> Who talks like that? Anyway, I got into the union of the art directors knowing less than anybody has ever known all the way up to this point. I, I love think. that. Oh, I mean, seriously. <laughs> and It's it all was, about what you don't know, Rick. Well, that's what it was. And I embraced it. But Michael Haller was able to see that and allow me to have entree and, and feed off of who I was. Mm. And then even Hal was. So I had a really good time with them. I mean, they invited me. Imagine that it's there's a driver, because they had to have a driver, because it was the Teamsters in an official movie. And then we would go out for these location scouts at night sometimes. And Hal in the front seat, then Michael Haller and Haskell Wexler, a very, very good cinematographer, in the second seat. And I was in the back of the station wagon. And then they would pull out a joint and smoke it. Haskell wouldn't, but every, then the driver wouldn't, but Hal and Haller would. And then they would pass it back to me and I'd have a hit. And then one of the either Haller or Hal Ashby would just at some point drive and they go, oh, stop, 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 stop here, stop here. We all get out and then they have to like get me out because I'm in the back, right? Then one of them says, so what's this scene for? I mean, what's this for? You know, and Hal would just say, well, I don't know, but I just thought it looked great. <laughs> <laughs> and the movies were kind of made that way. Yeah. Now, it's not to say that they weren't a problem on certain levels. Like you have a train, you have to figure out where a train is supposed to be. That could be difficult for the scheduling. But 
I love that it was so open and they found it. And I think a lot of that comes through his movies, particularly ones that work the best. Mm. Um, Harold and Maude and Coming Home and Being There. And and they just have a kind of, you feel like you're watching something evolve right in front of you. Even Shampoo, it doesn't have a kind of, okay, we've got a point to the scene. Now let's just illustrate yeah. this point. And all the, the dialogue is just going to be dovetailed to make that character point or that plot point. It comes around to that, but it finds itself through things that are just behavior and people really being in the moment. Mm. And so the movie being there is a characterization of what I would say I cherish the most about cinema, is that it can actually get you to a state where you're getting something that's there in your being, and suddenly there's something sublime, and you don't know if it's it or it's you, and it's somewhere between the two, and you feel, even though you're collectively watching it, sometimes you laugh with someone else, but whatever you got is personal, and you just take that with you, and then it just grows and it, and it reappears yeah. even later. And how was it was about the wavelength, mm. and that's what he intuitively understood, and he projected that in such a way that working with him was like that. And Michael Haller and Hal just got along so well, and I just tuned into that wavelength. So that was my first. I feel like also in um, being there, you've got that beautiful paradox again, someone that is both profound or taken to be very profound, but is also kind of nonsensical. <laughs> and, um, and I think working in that way as your entry point must have just been the most perfect beginning. And also, I think that sense of beingness, which was actually another question, you know, when that really came into life for you, when you became aware of that bigger presence and that sense of, you know, being behind it all. And so then starting off with someone like Hal and working in that way on films where they were kind of unfurling, it was almost like you feel as if the film is being discovered. You're discovering the film as the film is being discovered. That must have, in a way, really solidified your spirit of you know what you were bringing to it which was also a lot in the not knowing you know and embracing that well and it's interesting that you bring that up and it doesn't surprise me of course because that has been the nature of the wavelength that i do bring to the process once i got into it also I had, then i had to learn a lot of things you know like how the production works and what are the various issues that go into it now i had to learn about all the instruments that could be played or, and they were evolving you know over my course of 50 years the digital age has come in and that wasn't a part of the, the beginning the beginning was just how do you set up an art department what does the art department do what are the ideas that have to be accomplished what are the budgets and mm. the strategies there's so much that goes into it so the next 10 years was really about learning all of those things and never really having the core experience of the type that i had in the beginning with hal because it was not quite so it was much more this is this and that is that and we do this and this and then you do this and it was only after the first decade that i'd gotten somewhere you know because that, that was all like in 1974 75 so it wasn't until like 1985 when i encountered stephen on goonies and then from their amazing stories that i i started to see in him and bob zemeckis the bits of how 
that they wanted, but they put up such a structure around it because mm. they knew they had to make their visions, which were quite complex, especially when it comes to technical things, get through a system. So they had to storyboard, they had to be specific, they had to learn all these things in order to communicate in a big production, a big machine. Only once I got into that and then found that if I could sometimes tap into that how part, and basically it was the part of like, it really happened with Stephen and Bob the most, which was to be able to say, you know, we don't know what we're doing, you know, and then for them to come back with, I know, and that's exactly the point. Because if we knew, then we would just be playing out you know, something we already know. Yeah. And in fact, Stephen said it would be like having a Denny's job, you know, like the restaurant. And I'm going, Denny's? He goes, yeah, it'd be like I already made an order and then I'm just fulfilling it on the day. And I'm going, well, that's a pretty good Denny's job to have. <laughs> <laughs> but, but nonetheless, he liked that I opened up, I think, that unknowingness while still getting things done. Mm. I think he was afraid, and so was Bob, that if you admitted too much to not knowing... You could make other people feel uncomfortable that you didn't know. Yes. And that then then they would start to second guess and then they'd think, well, he doesn't really know, so we'll do this. It doesn't want to be like that. It wants to be like... Be in the gap. Be in the gap and make sure that you're communicating both ways. They're Mm -hmm. communicating to you what they know and don't know, but then you communicate back what you do and don't know so they can help you and vice versa. So that minding the gap then that allows for the beingness. Mm. You know, the being there and not being intimidated by the fact that you don't have all the answers. But to trust that the process is going to get you somehow to that next place. And sometimes, every once in a while, it asks the really harsh question, like, what does happen if we stop right now? And, oh, we can't stop. Okay, but what happens if we do? What are the implications? And then just the jarringness of that sometimes breaks open well, then why don't we do this instead? And then we can do this. Da, 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 da. Okay, now we'll get that over here and we can make that work. Mm. And they go, oh, yeah. But sometimes you have to be able to face that moment. And over time, I think I would identify that now as though that beingness in the middle of all that doingness is like a drug for people. As long as you can keep the doingness at bay or feeling like it's doing the right things by you being. Well, I would say you bring the two right together. I mean, I don't know why they would ever be separate because I think if you're in the beingness but also doing, um, the doing takes on a completely different quality. And, you know, and I think it's also knowing that the doing will take care of itself in the beingness, you know. I believe that, but I also know that in a big machine, oh, it's sure. all set yes. up to make sure that the doingness, but it's always about seeing the Zen Cohen or the absurdity in it that allows for both to happen. Mm. But sometimes you have to almost confront the do, 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 do with something that is a joke or something that reflects back enough that you you can outdo the do, do, do because it's really, you go, what? You know, that's not that interesting. So just doing it for the sake of it can just be spinning around. That's mm-hmm. not accomplishing anything because the doing is only good if you accomplish something. So that's why when Jim Cameron would say to me, you know, you can hear how I talk. And he would listen to me sometimes and go, I don't know. I have no idea what you just said, but I just like that we're getting so much done. Because out of the meetings, we would always have points of reference that we would make progress on in terms of the development of the idea and how it would go into production. And that's the double tracking mm-hmm. coming together that I've been 
trying to be so mindful of. But that, of course, took the next decade being comfortable through, not comfortable, but learning on Jurassic Park and Forrest Gump and some of those movies. Those are the ones where I felt like I was bringing that attitude to it, but it was still within the confines more of how things are normally done. And then after AI, which became a movie that was so much of a dream and a combination of Stanley Kubrick and Steven Spielberg, and we still hit the marks and made the movie, that kind of opened up for me the idea that both really could be simultaneous. And it was like breathing. You know, mm -hmm. you, you, don't, you don't just exhale. That's not breathing. You exhale and you inhale. So there's a duality to so many things that if you're just on one side of the equation, that's why I can feel like people often when they're doing too much, they feel like they're holding their breath the whole mm. time. They're not breathing with it. So learning to do that has been a big key. So if, if the question is, when did I learn? Obviously, along the way, Hal sort of started it. And then as I applied it to my own career with these other directors, it really was a matter of having more and more faith and then actually having some success with the end products that people felt there was some life to that. Mm. So I think I've attributed some of the life that's in the end product with some of the process because I'm actually not somebody who's had a bunch of terrible experiences working on movies. In fact, I've never had a bad experience. That doesn't mean it's not tense sometimes, but it's never been bad. Mm. So I don't mean to be... Um, like it can't happen to me it's more like it hasn't happened so why would i be fearful that it's going to happen and then i'm just bringing that to it there has to be something in you that manages to navigate manages to pull out these visions and work in this way that is very intuitive but it's also very tangible and somehow in these you know usually very tense big production situations with a lot of people and a lot of egos and budget issues and all of these things. How do you keep breathing? And how do you find that place where you are dealing with the tension, but you're also not letting it overwhelm you? Partly, I think it's because of having had experiences where it has played out. So it's as tangible to me to breathe back and forth as not breathing. And actually, it's worked out so that I actually done, don't consider the other to be a viable option just because other people say it is. And then on top of that, many people have given me feedback that they appreciate that if I'm doing that, that it helps them not to just get spun out in their own things. I've, I've literally taken somebody who was self-destructing by the back of their collar and yanked them out of the situation because I liked them. It was a UPM, a unit production manager, who was just digging himself a grave by working out his anxiety in a context that was with a director that would have ended up firing him probably if he mm. kept going. But I liked him and I didn't want to see him just self-destruct like that. I mean, that's kind of rough love, right? You know, I mean, I literally just, I just grabbed him and I said, if you keep going down this road, you're not going to end up on the movie. And I think you like being on the movie even, but you're just projecting nothing but bad stuff, yeah. bad juju. So I'm not always that way, but what I'm trying to get at is there's something that I've learned about the pragmatic sides of of that beingness but probably to answer the question really it really goes back to love i mean do you feel loved in your life and if i have felt loved in my life by my parents and my wife and my children and friends i have enough of a basis at least for these contexts 
to feel like my self-worth doesn't want to be abused. And maybe there's a way through not being too aggressive about defending that, that I can help the situation. And I probably have a mediator kind of complex about bringing people together and things together, again, minding that gap that maybe is sometimes really just for myself that I'm doing it. You know, other people would do whatever they're going to do, but if I can do that and make it a little bit better, maybe I'm also actually serving my own Mm. interests. And when I I see that, sometimes I will put that interest first. I think it's also self-awareness, you know, and you've shared some of the journeys you had in, say, in Tibet around the loss of your father. And, you know, I think it's also people that really do the work, you know, take the time and do the work to go in. You know, you look at Dorothy and her realization that actually the way I see it is that home was always, you know, here. And so I think you also have that sense of moving through, you know, that which is challenging and the sort of shadow side of consciousness that probably a lot of people would avoid and just not confront and not look at. And so I think when you do do that, you know, you bring in more empathy, you bring in more compassion for other people and how, you know, they might be dealing with those sorts of things, but not really even being aware of it. I think it as you bring in more awareness yourself, it is like the morphic resonance that we were talking about earlier. It it opens up more awareness in that whole space that you're working in. I agree with that. It's funny to characterize it, not funny, but it's only at this stage of life can I say that I can characterize it in that way for myself. It's actually one of the things that you're able to do that has inspired me to think in those terms more concretely even. Because I think if you can think like that, the benefits are so great. They really are because so many of the times those other things are so fictitious and they're, they're almost like bad potato chips. They're gone very quickly. You know, sometimes there is a deep something that's dragging you down from something that you experienced when you were young that told you you were no good or something and having to deal with that still. But many of the things are just like they're just so flighty and they're just like there and they flutter around and if you go for them like as bait like a shiny object imagine you're a fish and you're just hung up on shiny things and it never delivers mm. it never gets you something better so you take in all those shiny objects that are negative and now suddenly you're better protected not very often and so it's good to be aware of your surroundings but i think not reading into them too much so that you you get too defensive. That's the big part. And also people don't like being around people who are too defensive. Then they they want to attack them, actually. One goes back to the ego, isn't it? It's like if the presence of that isn't strong in you, then the presence of that in another has nothing to latch on to. That's what I mean. See, when you say things like that, (laughs) I am always earful for that orange juice because it actually shifts the paradigm slightly. So that what you're looking at, same equation, but what you're emphasizing is different. Yeah, this is a deep subject. I mean, do you know, I mean, George Lucas had a car crash and he saw his whole life sort of flash before his eyes and saw all this stuff that became Star Wars. Oh, I didn't know that. That's amazing. That's incredible. So you kind of go, oh, something (laughs) happened, you know, and those no things, those nothings can be quite important moments to just kind of. Well, and it actually makes me think of a line that I saw you said was originally an avatar. When you see everything, you see nothing, which got taken out. 
what was the impact of that line for you in the sense of trying to visualize something unvisualizable and also technically impossible, you know, seemingly? That was exactly what happened. It was like, I'm reading this script and I'm only a third of the way through and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, how are we going to do all this? And my job is going to be to really help visualize all this. And Jim's got a tremendous appetite for not only the vision, but the technical side of it. And I was so overwhelmed that I was starting to feel a little bit like, this may just be beyond me. And then the, the line came. It was like seeking words of wisdom. And there it was, was, you know, sometimes when you see everything, you see nothing. And I went, oh, he's actually identified the state that I'm in at this point on my journey with his story. So I then again, I could breathe because I was exactly where he had said that in a way the main character was because that's what was being told mm. him by one of the guides. It, like the scarecrow going, then again, some people go both ways. Mm. You're getting a message and this guide at this particular point was saying that you may be seeing everything to the point that you see nothing. And as to why it didn't stay in the movie, I don't know, but I know that it anchored for me the entire ability that I then felt that I could be of great help because I felt like I got him. I got what he was trying to do and I knew other people wouldn't. And then the second clue to him in reading that was I didn't know what the word phantasmagoric meant. And I liked it as a uh, word, but he used it to describe the bioluminescent state. And that's what it means. Phantasmagoric is as seen in a dream. So when he said everything is bioluminescent, it's phantasmagoric, I had to stop and look it up. But then again, just as I was having to figure out where I was, I was being told, it was like John Lennon telling me it's all a dream. Oh, okay, now I can I can back off and now other things can come in. Well, and also almost like not just identifying the state that you were in, but the state that you needed to be in to then, yeah. or you needed to surrender to, to then be able to see. Yeah. And also then to help lead others through mm. that. So they didn't get the common reaction to that is to start to shut down and then get very finite. Well, what do I know? And so that's fine, but that's contracting as compared to expanding. And that's why I often look for what I would call the paradigm shift, the opposite of what might normally happen in a situation that gives me freedom and transcendence as compared to finite and limited. Yeah, but bringing in the necessariness or the necessity of limitations, which I think is a really interesting, another one of those, you got to run the two things simultaneously, the two tracks simultaneously, because I feel like our imaginations need, and I wonder if it's raining, it's kind of beautiful. I feel like our imaginations need to be limitless, unlimited, but then actually the necessity to have practical limitations and parameters and things that kind of almost create a tension that you have to work against because otherwise you end up you know in the situation where you have all the money in the world you can do whatever you want and actually you do things just for the sake of it not knowing why and there's no intentionality so I know in addition to being Spielberg's go-to guy for so many years how many decades I don't know how many films you also saved him tens of millions of dollars yeah. during that time by um, pulling out things that were 
not needed. And on the one hand, that's efficiency, but I would also say that it's actually part of realizing what's superfluous creatively. When you get into the actual creation of things, not just the imagining, it really helps you to focus. That's what I love about the movie making process too, is you're not only you're, you're accountable to other people, so there's emotions and there's, there's ideas, but also when it comes to schedules and budgets, these are art forms that take a lot of money. And so to be responsible, Stephen has that duality. It's big in his life. You see it in the fablements between his father and his mother. They're very different. His mother's very artistic. His father's very pragmatic. But they both feed who he is, so he bounces back and forth. So my ability to bounce back and forth was inspired by him because I knew if I could cover both those sides, he would value that what I was saying in the middle would help him to determine what he wanted to do and what his priorities were. So often that's been a job that I've taken on. That just willfully, I want, number one, I want to see the movie made, but number two, I want to see it not be gluttonous. Mm. So gluttonous can happen when, you, like you said, you just do everything that comes to your mind and then you try to sort it out later. So when there are those restrictions, and Stephen does that because the money is his studios that it's being spent. Mm. So he'll actually take on two persona at the same time. One is the director wants everything, and the, then the studio slash producer wants it at a certain budget so that it actually can potentially make money back. And so people sometimes get actually confused by him about, well, wait a minute, he's just asking for all these things, but he wants to cut the budget. Those two things don't go together. Doesn't he know how movies are made? I've heard people say that. Of course he knows, but he knows exactly that you want that friction because that's what makes it becomes a little bit, I suppose, Darwinist survival of the fittest ideas. But there's something that creates a tension that's a good creative tension to working up against things. And he, in particular, responds well to limitations mm. and what's there and what to make out of something that brings him to another idea. Zemeckis does as well. That's why he calls them insurmountable opportunities. The obstacles and the restrictions, they form an opportunity that he wouldn't normally mm. go to. Well, and I think also going back to Hal, who is, in my view, someone who told or created some of the greatest films on a nothing of a budget often, um, because the story and characters and the beingness of everything was so present that you know, you believed every second of what you were seeing. And it wasn't about how much money was thrown at any of it. I'm sure maybe that was also part of your grounding, working with someone like that, perhaps. Well, and I'll think, I think there's also something that always, this is true, but it's particularly true in those kinds of movies that are independent and small in their budget, uh, is that you can solve anything with a better idea. And so when you're in an, an arena where a better idea actually can matter so much, then you start looking for them and you also ask yourself, is this the best idea we have about mm. this scene or is this just an assumption we made a long time ago? And often that's what I do is I look at what was the assumption that led to our decision to do it a certain way that's now causing us problems in terms of priorities. So it can be whole scenes that aren't necessary or elements of scenes or restaging so that you're just using the same thing over and over again. Mm. You make sure that you, you don't just have the company moving around all over the place. You want to be one place and shoot as many things as you can there. Because for one thing, you're just empowering all the logistics of the production as opposed to the creative people who just want to show up 
and create. But if it's all about the logistics, then everybody else's word matters as much as the creatives. Yeah. So you don't want that. That's not good. Well, and I know with Lincoln, you took a very less is more approach. We did. I mean, we not only didn't go to the place with the rebate, we just went to a place where we could shoot in literally four different locations. I mean, it's four different base camps were the entire movie. One for the stage sets, which weren't on a stage. They were just in a bowling alley construction area. Then there was a field that we got for free. And then there was a, a town that we basically got for free, Petersburg, and then the state capitol. And by doing it that way, also, I was able to control what Daniel Day-Lewis saw. So when he would come to work and he'd get into makeup, you know, become Lincoln, he was already Lincoln, but he would just come. He never had to see anything because we even dressed his trailer to look a little bit period not really but a bit so he never had to like be just put over here and here and then fly from here to here and then drive from here to here he was always just in the zone and that's what i looked at it as like okay we have to make all this work in the zone and then on top of that i was able to tap into certain things which were so obvious in retrospect like well duh lincoln actually came to richmond the real abraham lincoln so why not do it where he actually was? You know, because then it just starts vibrating with the history that's actually there. So, and everybody felt it once they were there, but that wasn't the obvious choice going in. And we got to certain tangible things like the streets of Washington, D.C. I put in a budget, all these buildings, you know, for signage, it was going to be $50,000. We didn't have that $50,000. So I said, okay, I, I know what we'll do. We just won't have any signs. So there's not one sign on the streets of, of Washington, D.C., and I don't think anybody noticed it, but going in, I wouldn't have thought that. So I know your process would have evolved over time, of course, but just to bring in some of the key elements of your process, painting has always been a big part of it in terms of working out what that, what that world is going to look like. And you can, of course, talk us through that and collage art and these sort of trip out journeys that you create to music. Journey is also obviously a key aspect because I I feel like, you know, you talk a lot about how that time in Asia, you know, became these reference points for you, whether it was Kathmandu and Back to the Future, you know, things like that. So just tell us a little bit. I know it's an impossible question. I find it impossible as well. But what are some of the ingredients that go into the process for you and how has that changed or shifted over time? So where are you today with that? That's the best part of the whole journey, literally, of being a production designer, working in movies, having my own artwork and my own philosophical musings and then attraction to certain music that at this stage, I do look for what is it that gets through all that that I'm already doing or think I've thought that is new and now starts to spark a new way of thinking. And one of those things is the notion that philosophically that you've introduced this idea that there's something maybe that's coming through you and that you, while you're the author of that expression, the basic place that it's coming from has a rightness to it and that, that it's your responsibility in a heavy way as much as the opportunity, because you feel responsible, to put it forth, and then it takes a little bit of the fear factor out of it. And we've had discussions where I'll bring up a certain notion that's maybe 
just a little bit infected by that other point of view more than is being helpful, meaning that the outside matters so much and how it gets through reality. And of course, I, I look at it sometimes as a tyranny that's blocking all sorts of avenues. But I have actually been doing a lot of work in the last nine months. I've been extremely productive, as it's turned out, actually throughout the entire pandemic, on certain levels that I can see are not fully hitting, but I feel like by getting them out there, I'm participating in a way of doing something that is, when I start to have that, well, who's going to see this? What does it matter? It's not going to help me monetarily. It's not going to help me with any level of anything, quote, on the outer view. And it's not that it doesn't matter at all. It just doesn't matter as much. And so then I'm becoming much more productive. I'm actually just churning the stuff out and and that feels really good because I do think that creativity begets creativity. I'm in the service of that now. And then every once in a while I hear somebody speaking the same language as that. And you're very good at that language because it comes through you. And yet you're a younger person who's teaching me about that at this stage as I apply it. And that's also what I look for when I'm, you know, there's a secret here if, if people don't know it, which is whenever somebody is mentoring someone else, it's for the mentor as much as it is the mentoree. So when you're younger and you turn to somebody and they can help you, just know that the mentor is getting a lot out of that too, because that makes them still relevant. Well, and I would almost say, again, you take the two things and they're one, you know, again, it's the oneness and that actually in that dialogue, it's within the dialogue rather than even the AB where, you know, the truth is sort of presenting itself or the wisdom is being applied. And I definitely feel like this is something we've talked about, but the nature of having a conversation, I do feel that the answer is always in response to the question, not literally, but on the frequency or the wavelength. So, you know, you would know you've been asked the same question a million times, and it will always provoke a different answer. And so actually, it's really, again, you know, not the words, but the frequency of the words, just like when you were hearing the Beatles for the first time, it was the wavelength of that transmission that took you to a, another place. And speaking of another place, space, what is the music you would send into space, Rick Carter? I wonder. Well, I, again, I'm so literal because I do think of John Lennon's song Across the Universe because there's a poetry in it as it progresses and it floats out there and then becomes this kind of mantra that's being spoken at the very end. And I guess when I think of space, that's where I do think of projecting consciousness out into it. Now, <clears throat> there is probably something that's coming back from that nothingness, but when it comes to the idea of, of projecting it just out and not knowing when, if, where, why, how it's going to be received, I think I have to just go to that place where when it came to me as a message, like the song Across the Universe, which I heard the earlier version of it before I heard the later version. He recorded it twice, once with the Beatles early and then once later. That one just projects out. Mm. So that's why I think I picked that song. Wonderful. So now we're going to take a listen to Across the Universe by John Lennon. Words are flowing out like endless rain into a paper 
cup They slither wildly as they slip away Across the universe Pools of sorrow, waves of joy And that was Across the Universe by John Lennon. That was the song that Rick chose as the music he would send into space because it feels like it was pretty much written for that. So, you know, just call up Bob and get the horn antenna out and, you know, (laughs) do another space broadcast. Talking about space, you have worked in space. Of course, we all work in space. Um, We're all moving in space all the time. But, you know, with The Force Returns, Star Wars The Force Returns, and your ability, I remember you said to me that within every scene or every moment, your question was assessing the level of force and then how that was represented. Well, coming on to what became The Force Awakens, Star Wars 7, and that was like an opportunity to re-examine and re-explore that whole galaxy that George Lucas had created over six films. Obviously, there were certain commercial considerations that had gone into the idea that they wanted to bring it back. Disney had bought Lucasfilm, but Kathy Kennedy, who was the producer, asked me to join. And I think what she wanted from me was to ground whatever we were going to do in some of the older filmmaking techniques that I'd been a part of from my time the 70s and the 80s and of course the first star wars were made in the in the 70s and i'd gone through the digital revolution of the late 90s and so i was well versed in those techniques as well as some of the emotion of the journey and having something there that matters on a transcendent level and there's very few movies other than star wars and avatar that name that other level in avatar of course it's awa But in Star Wars, it's the Force, and the Force is not something you can see. So you can see and feel its impact on the characters and the dynamics and narrative, but it's not something you can actually hold up as an object uh, in any way. And so when I went to the art department of visualists that I hired with was a question, rather than say, let's do this, let's do this, let's explore this planet, we can do a water planet, we can do an earth planet, we can do an ice planet, you know, all the kinds of thingness that you might want to, to get into. I said, let's put those aside and first ask the question, how strong is the force? It's a very abstract question, except for what I was saying is it's not abstract. You can demonstrate how strong the force is through your art. How much creativity you can come up with, we can come up with, will help the filmmakers that are going to come in and make all these narratives and everything to determine what they're working with. I mean, the force has to be strong. Otherwise, it's going to be a concoction of lots of scenarios and characters and narratives. And so in doing that, I think I helped to open up some ideas. And one of the best ideas that came from that type of uh, questioning was ask other questions along these lines, which are like, what would actually frighten you if the dark side returns in this galaxy? What form would it take and what would happen that would actually be fearful? Because that hadn't been determined. It was, yeah, we got the bad guys and they're they're coming and they're dark and they got Darth Vader and then they're they're hurting all the good people and those are the rebels and you knew you had that dynamic. But what are they doing? Are they just being like Nazis and taking territory? What are they doing? And it was actually Dennis Murin, who was one of the visual effects sort of gurus of, from the first movies, 
incredibly talented, brilliant person I'd worked with before, he was in on one of these meetings. When I asked that question about what would actually make you afraid, he said, well, you know, in his, his sort of very nonchalant way, he was, he's a little like Hal Ashby, really. He said, well, you know, imagine Hal Ashby saying this, but it, it wasn't quite that way. He said, well, you know, I mean, if the dark side could take the light out of a star, that would be pretty scary. And you kind of go, yeah, that would be pretty scary. <laughs> in fact, that goes right to the idea of Star Wars and the dark side without even having to move. And so that became the threat. How does the dark side extract light from a star? That's where J.J. said, and we'll not only just take the light away, we'll use that power as a weapon to destroy other planets. That became the base of what's actually the threat in that movie. It's a visual idea. Mm. It's an idea of a vision that didn't have an illustration at first. It just had the idea. So that's what the process was like to come up with questions that then led to actual tangible solutions that then resonated back as metaphor into the movie. And I was very happy to see that happen because I felt that did give something that I felt was strong enough, at least to, for that first episode that came out. And it allowed us to feel like something needs to arise here to counter that because that's really strong force. But we now we need something from the good side of the force. So I think it is worth saying, if we're imagining that we are out in space looking at our beautiful planet, and that's you know another journey, and journeying from Dorothy's first journey that you saw to now has been a very prescient theme for you. I think something with you that is a real magic you have is that you also create journeys within dialogues, you know, so with directors or with anyone that you're talking with, I have been um, on many Rick journeys. <laughs> and it's this way of sort of opening up the dialogue space to have something be considered from all these different points of view and perspectives, and where you actually also anthropomorphize fear and the ego and or whatever it is, and you, you get people to really do the voices and bring these objects or these entities to life. So have you always done that? And is that something, because that's really, I think, how you draw out a lot of the vision of, you know, when you're working with these people, it's like, that's a big part of you helping them to see things they either are looking at too closely, or they need to look at from another perspective, or they don't even realize almost what their perspective is until you present it in a different way. Right. Well, I'm trying to, in my mind, I now put two things together, which is to take the first image you said, looking at our planet from a distance and then applying what you're saying about my own consciousness of drawing out from creative people that I'm associating with a vision that we can act on and I think it's something I've always done I think that what we referenced earlier about the breakdown of the ego that happened for me as a teenager John Lennon was doing it in his 20s got me into thinking about other points of view that were not my own and giving voice to them, whether I'm anthropomorphizing an element and giving it a voice, or I'm actually going into someone else's head and acting like I am them, and then taking on that point of view, and then feeding it back, hopefully in a way that illuminates something that, the, that none of us had seen before. And that's me going somewhere else, outside or inside. And I think it's when you go, for me now, inside that I can access the most outside. I'm talking about mostly things, we're talking about things that mostly have to do with, you know, this body of work and the journeys that I've been on to be creative. 
But when you take the image that you put forth, which is, I think, a very important image for you that you see of looking at our beautiful planet from a distance and seeing what it is, and also then going all the way in with that breathing back and forth. The reason for being creative and expressing and cherishing and celebrating creativity is that hopefully it's a part of the life force on this planet that is important to the well-being of this planet. And I think as I've gotten older, I have a spirituality to me and in me and around me. But if I had to give it a name as to what in my actions do I return to over and over again as the thing that I have faith in, it's creativity. Because I, I see it as the antidote to the destruction. And so when I hear people expressing their creativity in regard to preserving the planet, helping the planet, helping people on the planet. It's always been there, you know, most of my drawings and paintings of people, there's an awful lot of suffering in some of the portraiture and integrity of souls trying to make it through their lifetime. But there's also a, a kind of now awareness that being creative is the antidote that I actually believe in. Now, a lot of people say, well, this person is being creative and you don't agree with that person, that person is being creative. But in general, I find that creative people that are putting out that kind of thing have some common points of reference. And there's a lot of humanity and a lot of creation. And so I guess that's when I'm looking at that planet from a distance. I'm just saying we are so creative and we have to create our way out of this dynamic. And I don't know what form that takes. But I'm glad that we have creativity on this planet and that that blue and that green really matter because we all know instinctively that's where life comes from and that more creations begat. Like I was saying before, that creation does begat other creation, whereas destruction tends to do the opposite. And whereas we do have to breathe, we don't want to breathe to the point where we exhaled so far that we can't catch another breath. What is the song you would have play at your memorial, Rick? The song that I would like to be played, if there's a context for that, at a memorial, whatever that is, is Tomorrow Never Knows. And the reason is because there is an elliptical coming back around where the, the dying is really just the beginning of something else. So even just incorporating like that little bell from the computer saying <laughs> message from somewhere i'm just going to say that let's just say it was my memorial and they were playing tomorrow never knows and this bell went off and you might be there and say oh look there's a message from somewhere and just that is like a little unexpected thing that comes in and says oh there's something we don't know about yet it's right out there. Perfect. Okay, so now we're going to take a lesson to Tomorrow Never Knows by the Beatles.
And that was Tomorrow Never Knows by the Beatles. That was the song that Rick Carter chose to have play at his memorial, which we're in right now. It's actually happening right in this moment. <laughs> um, no, I am very glad you are still here physically, tangibly in this 3D dimension. So, you know, how do you feel? How do you feel about death? It's very hard to comprehend it. I would say that's for sure. I think I'm just, I found myself so much more in love with life as I've progressed through life. It's not arbitrary to me. It feels, gosh, we're just so designed to be here when we're alive. And so much of what becomes cumulative just adds to that feeling of wanting to be here, at least for me. And I do look to how many people who are younger, seem to have gotten a certain level of message and want to do something with their lives that's based upon that. Because there's lots of reasons to say, oh, that doesn't matter, it's just hippy-dippy stuff or it's not going to get you anywhere. But I don't think that's true. And from my experience, it's not. So I actually am encouraged greatly, actually, by it. What do you feel life is about? I think it's, it's about exploring, finding giving, knowing, and then trying to be cheerful and gracious with all of it. That's beautiful. You're talking about creativity as an antidote to death. And then also in one of our chats, you said, well, creativity is also an antidote to life. So we were we were sort of playing with that one a bit. And then I was thinking, in a way, life, death, and creativity are all surrendering to something that is greater than you. Yeah. And I think that, once again, that's part of the dialogue we have, that I often will veer, and I like being brought back to this more neutral place that can see both in a dance that is, you know, it's been said in many different ways, the yin, the yang, the dualities. But I do feel that the oneness is where the peace is with life. And I love being reminded of that, too. And you've been putting together your gravity pack <laughs> very quickly. Tell us what is in your gravity pack, or is it just purely metaphorical? Well, it's Adele, my wife, and I sitting down and saying, well, let's put together all of our accounts and various things in a way that if our kids had to access what we've left, that they could do it without having to go through just so much. I mean, it's all going to be difficult as it is, but what would they look at and how would it be laid out? And because my mother is 97 and we've been doing it for her, and you can call it a death kit if you want, but the idea came in and around the idea that Ultimately, gravity has such a powerful force in our lives, and it is a little bit really neutral. It just is. And we, one way or the other, wherever our spirit goes, our body, the gravity just will bring us down and we'll, one way or another, join with this whole planet and once again become part of something that, that is the next stage of life on this planet. So gravity was just such a much better way of, of acknowledging who is behind all these pragmatic things that had to be solved. I think it's like nodding your hat to gravity and going and saying, so we're paying a lot of attention with all this transcendental talk and everything. Just want you to know that we, we pay a lot of attention and care deeply about gravity. And also, by the way, all these thoughts, we have this great word that we use in homage, which is gravitas. 
So I just liked the idea of doing it that way, and so did Adele. And so we, we get a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a chirpiness to having a, a gravity kit. So in addition to your gravity kit, what record would you pass on to the next generation, to your kids? And this is your final Orange Juice choice. The album that turned me on so much to all of my exhilaration of, of this musical state of mind is Sgt. Pepper. And A Day in the Life just blew my mind. Where that one went... I can still remember the first time I heard it. I just couldn't believe it. And I still can't. So that would be the song. Okay, wonderful. So in just a few moments, we're going to end with A Day in the Life by the Beatles from the record Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But last couple of questions, Rick. How do you feel about the notion of your legacy? I just want to be remembered, I suppose, as somebody that people liked. I don't mean like in a superficial way, but that I made a difference in their lives in in an emotional way and listened to them, heard them, appreciated them seeing me. And that while I was here, that there was a series of those things that people maybe take a little bit forward after I'm gone. And the making of the art is is a bit of a way of creating kernels and things that have a sort of tangible form that maybe someone can take it, have a little piece of that and then refer to it later. And and you don't know how long it'll last, but each art piece is a little vehicle to take a little bit of the spirit and just project it into, well, into space. So that's my, my way of projecting into space, I suppose, is leaving some art and some writing, and but also having some personal relationships with my kids and friends that they remember me in some way that they go, oh, you know, he was a good egg. <laughs> You are and continue to be a good egg. I feel like you will be a good egg until, I don't know where I'm going with this. Cuckoo, cuckoo. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so if you're thinking about the thread that connects all of your orange juice for the year choices, what is it? Well, it really is about feeling transcendental. It just takes me to another level where I feel peaceful and accepting and content and appreciative. And orange juice has a bit of a sugar rush with it too. So it's a bit of like, ooh, isn't this good? And thinking about film today, what do you think we've gained and what do you think we've lost? Well, it's transitioning as it always does. It's hard for me to, I don't know. I, I don't really know how to answer that question. I might have some opinions, but in general, I'm glad that it's as vibrant as it is in whatever form it's taking. There's a lot of criticisms one can have about the streaming, you know, and small screen and people just creating content for a corporate entity and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, Imagine if we didn't have all that during the pandemic, then the whole industry would just shut down totally. So it didn't because there was still a need. So we still seem to have a vibrant, powerful need to get stories told that, you know, it's an audiovisual experience. And I appreciate that that's so powerful still, even if it's a small screen. I, I like big screens, but then again, I understand that I don't go out the way I used to. So if it can be adaptable, it'll find its way, like water. Like water. Yeah. What is it that you hope to leave behind with all of the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do? You know, again, it goes back to John Lennon. And that's what's so interesting for me, the continuity, maybe just for me. But that opening line of all you need is love. There's nothing you can do that can't be done. If you just think about that, it's so wonderful because it does come back on itself. You're either doing it or you're not. And if you can do it, then it can be done. If you're not doing it, then it's not done yet. So we're always in these expectations that I hope I can do this. Well, you're either doing it or you're not doing it. And so then when you realize from the other side, there's nothing you can do that can't be done, 
you go, oh yeah, well, of course, it's already, it's the doing that's already happening or it's not. And so I love thinking and feeling like that and then producing and then it's going to go, I suppose, even more than I thought in the beginning of this, just out into the space. And I don't know who's going to receive it or whether it's going to be a part of anything. But the doing has got such benefits on a daily moment, or as Leonard Cohen would say, thought by thought. Well, I'm very happy to end with you quoting Leonard Cohen, Rex. <laughs> <laughs> he would be another person I could go to to say a lot about. And I would like to, I don't usually do this, but I would just like to say I think there is something really beautiful about the fact that we do have this one 3D world, you know, that we're living on mm -hmm. right now, even though I think we are of other worlds, but that you've brought some of those other worlds into our world. Mm. And I think that that's a really special thing and something not to be underestimated. I think it also is great to sometimes, at least at this stage, for me, think like that. So again... Any amount that I am doing that, if I can be the medium for that, then that's that's a purposeful thing for me to do. And I like that this concept of creating worlds has come into people's way of thinking, but I think that it's more about just tapping into something that's not here and now that helps the here and now. And that maybe the here and now is really just this wonderful receiver of so much that is not here and now. If you think about it that way, it is really kind of, it's the that which is coming in. Where can it come to? And, and this the here is a and landing now, place. Yeah. Because we've got gravity, man. And everybody else is going, yeah, man, we just had some more gravity. And then Jupiter's kind of going, oh, man, we got so much gravity. But, you know, like we're just like getting stuff from everywhere. You know, Earth is just third position from the sun. Oh, man, they just got it. Like so many things. Don't fuck it up. Because, I mean, you got the right amount of gravity, atmosphere, distance from the sun, water galore, mountains, consciousness, self-awareness. Wow. Just think if you're one of, here's that thing of just think if you're one of the other planets in the solar system. I'm not holding it over them, not going, oh, look at us, because I'm saying more like, yeah, what can we, we don't want to actually look like Mars. <laughs> You know, I'm not putting Mars down. I'm just saying what this is, we go back to that perspective and go, oh, boy, that, a lot's happening there. We're in the Goldilocks spot. I like that. That's good. <laughs> that bed. Rick, this was so wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us. And we are now going to end on A Day in the Life by the Beatles from the record Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But Rick, yeah, once again, what a chat. <laughs> Thank you.